Take your Bible, turn to the book of Numbers. I'm going to be reading chapter 16, though referencing part of 15 along the way. As we continue our journey in chapters that you're like, is that really in the Bible? Did that, that happen? Numbers chapter 16, I would remind you this is the Word of God, and though it was written a long time ago, and it was written with very specific people in mind as original reading audience, because the Spirit is all-powerful, He wrote it with you in mind as well, even this day. So we can say this is God's Word for you. Numbers 16, now Korah the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he's brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. Would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron? (laughs) Don't you grumble against him. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. This is a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. That you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? It will not come up. And Moses was very angry. 
said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I've not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. Moses said to Korah, be present you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers. You also and Aaron each his censer. So, every man took his censer and put fire in them, laid incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in the moment. They fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, the elders of Israel following him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away. Away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. It's not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. 
As for the censors of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be a sign to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel. So that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company. As the Lord said to him through Moses, This is my favorite part. It makes me laugh. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, against Aaron, saying, you've killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold... The cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared, and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly and behold, the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living And the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give light to your word. Give faith to our hearts, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. I'm trying to restrain myself. I've only done it once. I'll do it again today and hopefully maybe not quite for a while. But to be excited and talk about this new telescope that went online a couple of weeks ago. Sorry. I'm excited. For those that don't know, it's the James Webb Space Telescope. It's effectively replaced the Hubble Telescope. And all of you are like, well, who cares? Well, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I get it. Uh, This new James Webb Space Telescope has a fantastic new camera, the lens of which is the most amazing thing. It's about roughly almost the size of our Bible wall. Eh, close. It's covered in gold so that it reflects highly polished and then covered in glass to protect it from space dust, and it's able to take pictures further out and with greater clarity than humans have ever seen before in human history. If you haven't looked at it a couple of days ago, they released a new photo. They've been releasing kind of a steady stream. This one was of the Phantom Galaxy, and it's a galaxy that looks like somebody made some sort of kind of 
crazy glitter-shaped soup and just stirred it with all of the little swirls. And then if Star Trek put kind of like a wormhole in the middle, it's the most amazing picture. Something that God has been enjoying since he made it, and we're just now discovering the other thing that this one has been able to discover that's just kind of blown my mind is that uh, some of these constellations that we've been looking at, some of the parts of the sky, we've been kind of known the stars that exist and have a, a good guesstimation of what those stars are, and now that they're able to actually zoom in at kind of new and, and clear levels, they're actually finding out some of the things we saw were stars are actually galaxies, billions of stars. And they're able to zoom in and you can see the various swirl. It's the most amazing thing. Things that God has been enjoying since he made them. And I think about that, like, what an amazing thing to think about, just as a development in that scientific field that you've had men and women, very clever men and women for thousands of years, trying to kind of discern the stars from one point hanging in space, hurtling through it, you know, thousands of miles an hour. And now, we're beginning to be able to take pictures, pictures of things so far across the galaxy, we can't even wrap our mind around the distances. My favorite quote Coming from astronomy is actually one you hear me say all the time. It's from Johann Kepler. Kepler, a German scientist, architect, mathematician, astrologer, eh, lots of things, devout Christian. And when he was questioned on his understanding of uh, astronomy, he's the one that figured out that the planets orbit uh, the sun in an elliptical orbit, not just around, it's egg-shaped. He's the one that figured that out just with math and a telescope. Dude was a genius But when he was asked about his observation of the planets and things like that, he said, one, we have to be very, very careful that we don't grow an overinflated sense of self-worth. That we begin to think that our thoughts are the end. That our thoughts are the goal of creation instead. And this is what he said. Our effort is an effort to think God's thoughts after him. I love that. Again, you hear me say it all the time. You probably didn't know where it was from. It's from Kepler. His idea was that science as a whole, but really the human experience, every bit of it, top to bottom, uh, the happy days and sad days, how we process everything in our life uh, when we discover new things, they're an effort to think God's thoughts after after him. What Kepler was meaning is is our, our end is not to figure out what Michael is thinking. Who cares what Michael is thinking? I mean, in some sense, I, I love you. I care what you think. I don't care what you think at the end of the day for shaping my life. It's what God thinks. How I live my life doesn't need to be determined by what I think is good and right and beautiful and true. It needs to be shaped by what God says is good and right and beautiful and true. This, I think, exposes a great kind of failing in humans in general. Uh, I think our moment in time and in history, human history, is particularly bad at this. 
which is the temptation to be preoccupied, to be consumed with thinking our own thoughts, to be valuing our own mind, to be praising our own desires, to be taking the self and elevating the self to the height of human thinking. In fact, actually, I would say the danger is that the self infiltrates our minds without us even really knowing. Without us even being aware that the self has has filled our mind. I'll give you a summary of a conversation. It's one I have all the time. I had it yesterday. I'm going to talk about a subject that deals with human experience, something you're experiencing, something I'm experiencing, something of the sort. And I, somebody will say something, well, I know God, God thinks this. I know that this is what God wants for me. I, I know that this is what God is doing. I'm like, oh, really? How do you know that? Well, that's just, that's what God's doing. I know that. Oh, interesting. How, how do you know that? Well, I'm, he, he's, he's, he said it in the Bible. Really? Let's talk about that. Where is that in the Bible? I don't know. Ah. You see, the vast majority of the time I have that conversation, it's not me trying to be a jerk, to push a person, to to show their ignorance. It's actually a conversation where a person is saying what they believe, but footnoting it to God. It's actually what we talked about in Sunday school today with marriage and divorce. We see this all the time in the church today with how we define marriage or how we define divorce when divorce is permittable and people saying, well, I know God's doing this. Really? Where does he say that? I I don't know. I actually appreciate the more consistent answer where people says, oh, he told me personally. That's eh, nonsense, but I really appreciate it. Because it's at least honest. Great. What you heard versus the Bible, I think I have an idea which will win out. You see, the reality is, is we as Christians have to develop this kind of maniacal commitment to what does the Bible say And how do I live in light of it? What does the Bible say? And how do I live in light of it? What does the Bible say? And how do I live in light of it? And you see, this is another thing where kind of the the consequence of us taking our own will and reading our definitions onto things is that it begins to distort stuff. One of these areas is sin evil. What is sin? Now, if you've worked with the children in this church, you probably already have ringing in your head. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's right. It's a violation of God's law. 
That's our kind of theological definition, but how, how do we define it emotively? How do we evaluate what's good or bad kind of emotively? And if we're really honest, if we had a, a lengthy conversation where we kind of discerned our own hearts, at the end of the day, usually we're going to kind of come down and say, sin or evil are the things that hurt me. The things that make me uncomfortable are the bad things. The things that that make me sad are the bad things. As a youth pastor, I once had a family leave the church over my youth ministry. It was hard to keep this one with a straight face. Nikki's already laughing because she knows where I'm headed with this. We did an exit interview with the family. I didn't do it. One of the elders did. Like, why are you not staying at the church? What's happening? And they said, well, we had to leave because of our daughter in the youth ministry. And they were like, oh, I'm sorry. And we thought we had a good youth ministry. What's going on? And they said, well, she figured out that if she was going to stay in the youth ministry, she would have to sweat. And our daughter refuses to sweat. So we had to find a new church. And they were like, what now? And they're like, no, no, seriously, she, she refuses to be uncomfortable. And she knows that the youth ministry here will make her uncomfortable. So we have to leave. I had to have a legitimate conversation with the personnel committee about the nature of our youth ministry. They're like, surely that's not the case. I started laughing. I was like, absolutely, that's the case. That's my job as a youth pastor, to make people uncomfortable so that we grow. People don't grow when they're sedentary. They have to be pushed off kilter. It's the same thing with adults. We, we are so comfortable. We define sin as the things that hurt us or make us uh, uncomfortable, make us sweat. Things that are inconvenient to us. The problem is, friends, that's our definition. And when we have a definition of sin like that, passages like this make no sense. None at all. Like, I, I don't know if you paid attention to the latter half of this reading. This is one of those passages that they don't put on the flannel graph in Sunday school because it's too crazy. I mean, it's like the great showdown. You've got the rebels on one side. Korah and his 250 men, they show up with their golden censers to offer before the Lord. You have Moses and Aaron on the other side, and they go to meet before the tabernacle, before the tent of meeting, and what's going to happen? And then, whoa, God shows up, and the glory cloud of God is there. And oh yeah, by the way, all of Israel comes out, so you have this very public showdown. The people of God in the back watching, Korah on one side, Moses and Aaron on the other side, God Almighty overseeing the showdown. And what does God do? I mean, obviously he kills them, kills them all. But I love Moses there in verse 29. If all these guys die a normal way, eh, that could just be dumb luck. They need to die some special way. So the ground, literally, I mean, that, it eats them. 
It opens up, it sucks them down alive, them, their families, their children, anyone who didn't run from their tents and all of their belongings with them, takes them down alive, bring them to the bottom and they die underneath the earth. That's taking place back in the camp with the guys, the villains, the 250 in front of the glory of the Lord are consumed by a whirlwind of fire that proceeds from out of the very presence of God. It's crazy. Again, I introduced it correctly before I read it. This is one of those chapters you're like, this is in the Bible? And the thing is, is that when we read chapters like this, it most often offends our sensibilities as civilized, sophisticated Americans. How is it that God could make the ground eat them? It's not fair. I mean, they're children. It's not fair. I mean, granted, they had the opportunity to leave. They sent somebody through and said, go run away, and no one did, so it's kind of their fault, but still, it's not fair. And for what? For what? You see, this is actually where I started. Our goal in this life is not to take our own values and to read them upon the word of God. Because if you take your values, the natural default American values, the values that say the greatest crimes that you can commit are the ones that make me uncomfortable, if that's what you have, you read Numbers chapter 16 and you end up with a God who's the villain instead of the God who's the hero. And unfortunately, it puts you on the wrong side of the equation. You see, that's actually why we read that Jude passage. Many of y'all know this. I think probably my favorite book in the entire Bible. It's the only one I can keep the entire structure in my head all the time because it's just one chapter. Jude writes and says, look, I wanted to give you a letter that's to encourage you. But instead, I have to warn you about the creepers. These people who have have crept into the church, the creepers are taking over your mind and what they're doing is they are rebelling against God and the way they're rebelling against God is they're taking your pleasures and they're elevating them to the highest good. They're the people that are teaching that if it's awkward or if it's uncomfortable or if it hurts your feelings, it must be bad. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Like, was this written last week? I don't know. They're the people that blaspheme the things they don't understand. They're the people that, that elevate their sensuality, their senses, their desires, their delights. And they reject God's authority. Jude verse 11 actually literally connects it to this. These people are like those that perished in Korah's rebellion. That's number 16. They're hidden reefs, those that destroy those that are not paying attention to them. They're shepherds that feed themselves, not the flock. They're waterless clouds. I love that. That is a great illustration. It's a useless cloud in a dry climate. 
fruitless trees, wild waves of the sea, they're useless, awful, and evil. Now, honestly, that, that right there, that, that already upsets me. I like to be one of those people. I like to be comfortable. I like to feel good. I don't like to be miserable. I don't know anybody that does. And already Jude has taken a shot at all of those people that say, hey, if you're that person that's taking your pleasures and elevating them to the highest good, you're the problem because you're the bad guy. You're not the good guy. And if you're the bad guy, you're going to read number 16 and you're going to see a God who's the bad guy. Instead of what we started with, that maniacal, all-consuming drive to understand what God says. To think His thoughts after Him. So let's look at what He says. Why does God have the ground open up and eat these people? Why does He have the fire of God come out from the tabernacle and consume them alive? Why does he send a plague? What are they doing that upsets God so much? Because they're not murdering anybody. Right? That's the American thing. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else. They're not hurting anybody else. That's really the truth. It's amazing. They're not doing anything to hurt anybody else, and they all get killed by God. In fact, God's so angry, he's going to kill all of Israel for them. If that hadn't been for Moses and Aaron. What are they doing? Well, at least five things in Numbers 15 and 16, very briefly. First, they've rejected God's authority. You see, that's how the starting point Korah and 250 men, the chiefs of the congregation, again, these aren't just your normal kind of, uh, you know, idiot Israelites. These are the leaders, the chiefs of the people. These are famous people, popular people, influential people. These are their rulers. They get Korah, who is a Levite, 250 of the local rulers, and they gather together before Moses and Aaron, and pay attention to what they say in verse 3. You've gone too far! (laughs) I love that. For all in the congregation are holy. Not entirely wrong. Every one of them. The Lord is among them. Again, not entirely wrong. He lives there with them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, there's the kicker. Their question takes some good presuppositions that perhaps misapplied. Why are you, Moses, putting yourself over all of us? Now, you remember your Bible story. You learned this in Sunday school, some of you. Did Moses take this on himself? Was he eager for the job? Like, did God hand him a job description and Moses was like, yeah, I think I got that. I got that skill set. I've got the required, you know, needed things. Is that how it played out? No, actually, if you remember, it didn't. God actually captures his mind, captures his heart through a burning bush. He goes to cinnamon. Moses is like, nah, I'm not in on that, man. No thanks. 
You just told God no. That's really a bad idea. He comes up with every excuse. It's laughably bad. Remember, he's trained in Egypt. Egypt's, uh, this is, you get to see how bad of a liar Moses is. Egypt's primary thing in education was rhetoric. We know this. We actually have some of their teachings from the day. We, they emphasize rhetoric. Moses is probably one of the greatest public speakers on the planet at the time. He's literally the most qualified man in the world to do his job, and he refuses to do it. He don't want to do it. Seemingly, every step of the way, he's asking God if he can get out of it. He don't want to do this anymore. These people are difficult to lead, and yet, interestingly, Korah and his people are complaining about them placing themselves over, because realistically, what are Korah and his little minions doing? They're not actually complaining about Moses, right? That's not the application, don't complain about your pastor. That's fine, you can. The application is don't reject God. Don't reject God. That's what they're doing. They're not, they're not rejecting Moses. They're not rejecting Aaron. They're rejecting God himself. That's why Jude is so important. Jude actually explains to us, where are these people? They're in hell. These are not Christians. They've rejected the God who is wooing them, who's been bringing them out of slavery, who's been protecting them, who's been feeding them. They've turned their back on him. Turned away from him, rejecting him, hating him. Now, as with most devious thoughts, they're wrapped in appeasing and appealing language. Right? They, they make it sound so good. Yeah, you've gone too far. Everybody's holy. All of these are good people. Okay, maybe. They make it sound so nice. Yet they've rejected God. They've not just rejected God, they've rejected the, the calling that he's given to them. Moses actually brings this one out later, verses 8, 9, all the way through 10. Guys, realistically, Korah and your little minions, is it too small a thing that God made you Levites? Right? You're from the tribe of Levi. Their job was to be involved in taking care of the materials of the temple. They're the Kohathites. They were the ones that helped handle the holy things. But they were not from Aaron's tribe, so they didn't get to go in. These guys were the holy, glorified janitors of the church. And they're complaining about the place that they've been given. They've, they're complaining about their role. And Moses even calls it, highlights it, explains their heart to them. Look, you're not satisfied with what God has given you. You're not satisfied in the place that God has placed you. You're not satisfied with the person that God has made you. And so you rebel. I grieve. I grieve for our culture currently because our nation in our current cultural moment, our the land in which we live, reeks of this. Reeks of a people that are not content with how God made them. A nation that is 
pouring our resources into being different in all the wrong ways. Not content with being made as a boy or a girl. Not content being made in the color that God made you in the place that he placed you in his image. Not content with the beauty that God has given you. Not content with the family that God has given you. Not content with the brain or lack thereof that God has given you. Not content with the spouse or lack thereof that God has given you. We're a nation that's, that's dying because we can't find contentment. We're a nation that's eating itself, it's imploding like a dying star in on itself because we've begun to realize the emptiness inside. We wonder why our young people have more suicides than we've ever seen. You see, the issue is when a people reject God's design for them, it never goes well. It never goes well. They've rejected God's authority. They've rejected the station, the gifts that He's given them. They reject His circumstances. Verse 12, this is biting criticism. It doesn't read that way in the English, but my goodness, this is downright rude. This is the kind of thing that if it were said in public, you know, some little old lady would gasp and be like, ah, you know, it's too rude. Moses sends to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and says, uh, yeah, come on up, <laughs> time to show up. And they're like, eh, no, we're not going. Why not? We're not going to show up. We're not going to be a little part of your shindig. We're not going to mess with your showdown. Why not? Listen to what they say. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that does not have milk and honey? They're taking God's words and throwing them back in his face. They're rejecting the circumstances that God has placed them in. They're saying, look, you took us out of Egypt where there was a land flowing with milk and honey and you've brought us to Israel, what will be Israel, and there's no milk and honey. They're rejecting God's gift of circumstances. They're complaining and being critical of the place that God has placed them in the moment in time in the sphere of influences and circumstances and occasions and activities around them. They're grumbling and complaining about the place that God has brought them to. Now, for instance, it doesn't mean that we have to be happy about everything. That's the wrong application here. But it does mean that we're called to not reject the circumstances the Lord has ordained for you. Right? Some of you right now are in the midst of, of very easy circumstances. 
Your life is easy, it's simple, it's good. You find yourself probably not even thinking about it because we're not grateful creatures. And so if you're not thinking about how miserable you are, you're probably not. That's great. However, others of us are in a season of life that is very hard, very difficult. And if we're not careful, and if we're actually honest, we might find ourselves being critical of what God is doing. Critical of the things that He's accomplishing, the way that He's pursuing them. He's promised to make you to look like Jesus, and you just don't like the way He's doing that. It's like the young lady in my youth ministry. I just refuse to sweat. I don't like a God that requires me to, to, to be uncomfortable. And because I don't like a God that requires me to be uncomfortable, I don't like the circumstances that He gives. I don't like a God that uses suffering in any fashion, and therefore I reject the suffering. I skipped the most challenging passage actually in verse 15 or chapter 15. Just, just real quick, I'll go fast. I mean not fast enough, but still fast. 32 in chapter 15, they find a man who is gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. They bring him into custody and they're like, "What do we do with him?" And the Lord says, verse 35, the man shall be put to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And how is he going to die? Well, the congregation's going to stone him. Outside the camp is a mark of an unbeliever. Verse 36, they do. And we're like, what? They killed a guy for picking up sticks? I mean, surely that's wrong. Surely God made a mistake. Well, no, yeah, back up. That's our own opinion again getting in the way, isn't it? We know God's good. He's told us that. What is he doing here? Why is it such a problem? We see the guy, what he's doing, and they've already been given God's law. It's not like he didn't know. They already knew the punishment for working on the Sabbath was fatality. It was death. They knew that. What he was doing was proving that he didn't value his relationship with God at all. They had been taught. Remember, they'd been camped at the base of the mountain. God literally wrote that part for them. This is a day that's given to be in relationship with God. And he's like, I mean, I know it's a day for relationship, but there's better things to do. There's better things to do than know God. It's rejecting a relationship with God. It's ultimately rejecting his mediator. Moses and Aaron in this section, are this is unbelievable. I mean, I love how verse 48, you have this kind of moment with Aaron mediating for the people of God, and you have the dead on one side, the living on the other, and you have the man of God standing in the middle, contending between the two. But you see, that's actually the heart of what's going on. God's people are rejecting his mechanisms for dealing with sin. These Israelites, they are not Christians, and they have rejected what God is doing. 
They've rejected who he is. They've rejected how he is. They've rejected how he's working. So what does God do? He destroys them, not as children that he loves, that he's disciplining. He destroys them as his wicked enemies that have rejected him and are contending against him every step of the way. You see, what's happening here is not discipline of a child, right? Fatality in disciplining children is not acceptable. That's evil. You don't spank your kids until they die. That's bad. What he's done here is he's defeating an army that is arrayed against him. He has 250 warriors standing in front of his very tabernacle, arrayed as the forces of evil, rejecting that God. How well does it go for them? Well, not very. They're gone. Because what God is doing here is is not answering a critique on his goodness. Not disciplining children. He's showcasing his victory. He's displaying that nothing can stand in his way. He's showing how he values a rebellious heart. He's showing how he values faith and commitment. And honestly, again, if we kind of have any sense of kind of integrity about thinking about ourselves, this should kind of give us a little bit of sweaty palms occasionally. Give us a little bit of nervousness. Because I'd like to pretend that we never complain. I'd like to pretend that I don't have a rebellious heart. I like to pretend that I never grumble against the circumstances that God gives. I like to pretend that I've never grumbled about the way he's working his relationship with me. To pretend that I'm not those things would be to lie. I don't normally comment as I read, but verse 41 is my favorite verse in the entire chapter because it is so incredibly human. They literally have just watched the ground eat families. And the fire of God come out of the tabernacle and consume people. And I love it. It even gives the time stamp. Literally, the next day, they're complaining. I mean, you would think you would have at least a like 24-hour period of like, eh, I'm a little too scared to complain. Maybe God's not in a good mood. I'll shut up today. Maybe tomorrow, but not today. I love how human it is. And I would love to pretend that I haven't done similar things. You see, the difference here is the mediator. Here you have a people that are actively rejecting the mediator that God has given. They're rejecting Moses. They're rejecting Aaron as go-betweens. They're rejecting the God behind them. And it's why it's such a serious thing for those who call themselves Christians to have such a bad attitude toward Christ, toward his church, and toward the circumstances he's used to shape us. You know, the reality of the matter is, if we're going to be honest, some of us have a very low view of Jesus. We wouldn't admit that publicly. 
We try to pretend like it's not the case, but we have a very low view of Jesus. And the reason why we have a very low view of Jesus is because we have a very high view of self. And when we have a high view of self, we don't need a glorious Christ. Friends, here is the offer. Christ forgives freely to you. It cost him a great deal. Might it be that we need to repent? Not because we're the unbelievers. Maybe you are, actually. If you are a non-Christian, repent, please come talk to me. The Lord will conquer you. He will destroy you. There's an enemy army. But if you're a child of God and you're finding yourself that maybe this passage rings a little bit too true for you, you're like, hmm, well, they're describing my week last week. It's time to repent. To throw yourself at the feet of our great Redeemer, King Jesus, who is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and to find your forgiveness in Him. And I'll end with one application, really, where I started. Our life is not to be a life filled with our own thoughts. Our own thoughts get Korah and his family killed. Dathan and Abiram and their families killed. Our thoughts are not the beneficial thoughts. Our mission is to think God's thoughts. Obviously, after him, he thinks them first. And the way we do that is through a maniacal, all-consuming commitment to this book. I do wonder how much easier life would be if we were just honest when it was our own opinion versus when we got it from the Bible. And certainly how much more fun we'd have and how much more we would delight in King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for stories like this, marvelous stories, true stories, real stories. That if they weren't in the Bible, we would think they're implausible. But thank you that even in this, you're teaching us to see our sin. And even as we see our sin, to run to Christ. We readily confess We have grumbled. We've grumbled against your authority. We don't like to be told what to do. We've grumbled against our station in life. We're discontent. We've grumbled against the circumstances that you've placed us in. We've grumbled against your law. We've grumbled against our relationship with you. Lord, there is, if we're going to be honest, there are very few things we have not grumbled about. So many of us are people that complain all the time. Now, we may make those things look pretty, sound pretty, but you know our hearts. And so we plead the blood of Christ that you would forgive us for Christ's sake and change us. Amen. Amen.